Welcome to episode 88 of The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. So my guest today is Andrew Moore, who had just wrapped up teaching his graduate class at the School of Visual Arts. I'll just give you a a little heads up. You might hear some odd noises during this recording for about the first 20 minutes before we figured out that... There was a graduate student doing some hammering and drilling in a studio that I couldn't find. Uh, But it's not too bad, and it it only shows up every once in a while. But you're not going crazy when you hear these noises in your headphones or however you are listening to this show right now. Uh, Let me read a little bit from Andrew Moore's biography. Uh, Andrew Lambden Moore is an American photographer and filmmaker known for large format color photographs of Detroit, Cuba, Russia, the America High Plains, and New York's Times Square theaters. Moore's photographs employ the formal vocabularies of architectural and landscape photography and the narrative approaches of documentary and journalism to detail remnants of societies in transition. His photographic essays have been published in monographs, anthologies, and magazines including the New York Times Magazine, Time, The New Yorker, National Geographic, Harper's, The New York Review of Books, Fortune, Wired, and Art in America. Moore's video work has been featured on PBS and MTV. His feature-length documentary about the artist Ray Johnson, How to Draw a Bunny, won the Special Jury Prize at the 2002 Sundance Film Festival. And Moore teaches at the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program. Uh, so uh, Andrew and I have a really nice conversation. It's surprisingly short when you consider how much we cover, and we cover a lot of the things I just read to you. But we also talk about you know Andrew's first mentor, Emmett Gowan. We have a pretty intense conversation about the whole idea of ruin porn and what Andrew thought was wrong with that critique of photographing ruins. Uh, and we talk a lot about the influence of architecture in his life and his desire to... Uh, write more about his work, and how architecture and writing is very much connected to his work. Also, Andrew will be the juror for the upcoming Rust Belt Biennial, which you can enter now at rustbeltbiennial.com. So let me just mention before we start the show that the Tamara Torres La Feminista Soy Yo uh, show and reception at the JKC Gallery in Trenton went really well. Uh, The show is still up. Uh, you can find out more at mccc.edu forward slash JKC Gallery. Uh, but I'm hoping to have Tamara as a guest on the show sometime down the road. Right now, I think she'll be traveling to some other venues where she's going to be showing her work. So maybe when she comes back and uh, settles down a little bit, we can record. Uh, and I think that's about it. So uh, again, my guest is Andrew Moore. And thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. And we will talk soon. You just finished teaching a class? I did. I've been teaching at SVA for, I don't know, 15 years now. And, and I teach Friday. I teach a critique class for the, the you know, second year students during their last semester. And so I kind of see myself as the, the finisher. Like I get them to finish, <laughs> to simplify, focus, and get it done. In the graduate program. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So I, when I do talk to uh, other teachers, other professors, you know, one of the things we, we often talk about is... Um, 
sort of what you get out of it, you know, in this, you know, where if maybe you had a, a choice of different ways of making money as a photographer right. and we got into uh, teaching and, you know, I, I often say that I, I get very energized by talking to students and looking right. at their work and helping them figure out problems and, you know. You know, for me, I, I, I don't teach that much. I really just teach one class uh, one semester a year. Uh, because I'm really very busy traveling and with my own work, yes. and I and and I and I hate missing classes, and I don't, and you know, so so that that's the commitment I can make. Right. But what I really get out of it is I love seeing what young people are doing. I love seeing their ideas, their energy, what they're thinking about, what their concerns are, how the nature of the medium has changed, and then it'll change back, and uh, so it just kind of keeps me current in a way, and I like having my my kind of that in the background, the kind of my finger on the pulse in a sense of Absolutely. what the people are doing. So that's really what I get out of it. And, and of course, then there's, every, you know, every year there's like one or two students where I feel like I really do make a huge difference in terms of giving them either the confidence or the skills or some framework. And, and, and that's very satisfying as well. Yeah. How, how much do you get involved sort of technically, you know, in terms of like staying current and things like that? I noticed you shoot with a, a phase one camera. Yeah, I'm shooting everything. I mean, I shoot four, five, eight, ten, mm. Phase One, Canon, thirty DSLR. I mean, I, I kind of I'm all over the place. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty current. I mean, it's very hard to keep up with uh, all the layers of Photoshop. I mean, I really, yes. I I know what's possible, but I really don't push all the buttons when it comes to my own work because there are people who are just a thousand times faster than I am. But I certainly know what's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so most recently, I saw your work uh, on a site called the uh, Bitter Southerner. Oh yes, that was. I'm very happy about that piece. Yeah, that's that was really Blue Alabama. Blue Alabama. Yeah. So the the, the editor of that uh, online journal, uh, Chuck Reese, is wonderful, and uh, the gallery in Atlanta, that's the Jackson Fine Art Gallery, uh, they knew Chuck, and so when I was doing that show last April of 2018. Uh, that was the first time the, the Alabama work had been shown. They put me in touch with Chuck. And I don't really remember how this how it transpired, but they, I don't know if they asked me to write something or, or I had written something already. But, but Chuck said he thought it was one of the best things he'd ever seen written by a photographer. And then, so it was a fantastic opportunity to have not only you know, 20 or so pictures, a nice selection of imagery, but also to have written an accompanying essay for that. And, you know, unlike so many things I do where I'm handed a story uh, and then I'm illustrating it, basically, um, the opportunity to really write something. And, and it's actually, I got so many compliments about my writing that, in fact, I'm uh, I'm going to try to take some time off and actually write something. Yeah, no, the, the writing is beautiful. Uh, it, it, it has a, a very... Um, it feels very personal. It feels very, it's very storytelling mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of writing, and uh, and I also noticed that um, I just blanked on his name. The person who runs Bitter Southerner, Ch Chuck Reese. Chuck Reese. He also has a podcast. I saw. And, oh, probably. And a blog yeah. and everything else. Yeah, he's a, he's way out there. It's, he's a very and you know the name Bitter Southerner. It's like a triple pun because it's like you know the lost cause. It's a right. drink, and then there's some other <laughs> meaning that I'm not aware of. But what I loved was you know these are really. This is, and I, I wouldn't say overly serious, but it's but it's 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 about Southern matters. It's about Southern history, and these people are Southerners, and so to be embraced by them uh, was that was really significant to me, mm. uh, really meaningful. And in fact, 
I had, uh, there was some opportunity to maybe publish the pictures in the New York Times Magazine, but I loved the fact that that they were pub- they were printed in the in Bitter Southern. For me, it was a more significant kind of local specific audience. You know, right. the fact that they, they're kind of imprimatur that was very meaningful to me. Yeah, it takes away the that possibility that the, the New York Times is publishing it because it seems kind of otherly to its audience. Exactly, right? and yeah. I didn't want that kind of layer uh, or taint of exoticism to be uh, applied to the work. Right. So this this is the first time where you've written extensively on I've your work written, like you that. You know, actually, for all the books for Detroit Disassembled and for Dirt Meridian, I also wrote pieces, but. In this case, I really felt like I found my voice for the first time, that I was able to not only talk about the theory and the history and the process of the pictures, but actually to to talk about it in a personal way, to make the history personal. And uh, it was really a, a kind of remarkable discovery it, it, to, to be in your 60s. And, and I've always enjoyed writing. It was a struggle to always, you know, when you get to that beautiful sentence you're that's happy but everything up to that can be <laughs> very painful but um i discovered something about a way to write that i hadn't discovered before mm. and and is some of this work at yancey richards was at yancey richardson gallery as correct well, the, the show that she just did which we called blue sweep um because that's that's the title one of the main photographs that's a small selection i think those are 11 pictures and she generally likes to show my more kind of architectural work you know, for many reasons that I won't, don't get into, I won't, you know, but mm-hmm. kind of commercial, re- you know, the pictures that she can sell and that kind of hang together cohesively. But overall, the, the book, which will be out in September of 2019, at least a third of the book are portraits. So it's, oh, wow. there's going to be a very heavy people dimension of the book because that's the South and it's part of the story. And, um, and I really want people to see the whole body of work. Uh, maybe your, your, one of your more popular projects and books was on Detroit. Correct. Um, and I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on the, the name. It's uh, called Detroit Disassembled. Disassembled, Although that's it. David Byrne called it Detroit <laughs> Disassembly, which I thought, well, that's not bad either. And then you've done Dirt Meridian and, and quite a bit of work. I mean, people should definitely check out your website, andrewmore.com, right? And, Correct, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but uh, I don't know if you, were, if you were aware of this article. It was very hot and talked about a lot um, a few years ago called Ruin Porn. Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm very Guardian. familiar with that topic. Yeah, and that was one of the things they were sort of uh, uh, speaking out against, the idea that people kind of just sort of helicopter in and they take these gorgeous photographs of ruins, but there's a lack of history and a lack of people and a lack of connection to why, why this is the way it is. Correct. And I think that's something you do very well in the way you, I, I've watched, a, um, you have a piece on a Vimeo, I think. Oh, the Dirt Meridian Vimeo. Yes, the yeah, Dirt yeah. Meridian yeah. video. And, and so I, and I, and I, and I can see it in the, um, in the blue Alabama work. And you have a connection to the places that you photograph. You're connecting with people. I can, I hear the stories. Correct. You know, Correct. that with the people. You know, I, I was reading something about uh, the origins of history. People like, you know, Herodotus and Thucydides, these are kind of the originators of the whole idea of, a, of a writing history. And I like this idea that they originally called history learning by inquiry, to look at actually what was there. And in the case of Thucydides, he actually interviewed people who had been in the Peloponnesian Wars and this idea of a firsthand investigation of what happened. And that's very important to me. I'm not, I'm not relying on secondhand sources. I'm really out there 
collecting historical evidence, poetic facts in, in a firsthand manner. Mm-hmm. And so to be close to my subjects is very important to me. And in fact, that's why I basically start, stopped photographing in foreign locations because I always felt like a slightly kind of at arm's length. They didn't quite understand. And in some cases, I completely didn't understand the greater context of what I was looking at. And so one of the reasons to come back to the United States and really focus on this country was because I, 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 this is my country, and I do understand <laughs> quite well what's happening. And, uh, and to spend the time to spend three or four years or even 10 years to really fu- get uh, deeply into something that's important to me. And you, you have traveled extensively. You photographed in Vietnam, Abu Dhabi, Russia and the Ukraine, Cuba. Uh, Bosnia, a, yeah. Brazil. I mean, a lot of places. Yeah. yeah. As a, were you uh, working as a journalist at all at that point? Or was it just sort of the, the, the roots of journalism and documentary work that you were making? Yeah, I mean, I see my work as a kind of hybrid of, of fine art photography, of journalism, of documentary of uh, architectural photography. I mean, I'm combining a lot of threads in my work. I'm not a great journalist. I'm not, I'm not somebody who can show up and in three days kind of get the story. Uh, I'm not super aggressive. I don't like sticking my camera in people's faces. I just don't have that kind of raw hunger for, you know, the, the moment that I think a good journalist has. Uh, so I'm more like... Um, slow photography, like, <laughs> right. you know, I take my time, I make a lot of bad pictures, I chase down a lot of, uh, you know, dead ends, red herrings, but because I'm trying to weave a lot of different threads together, and that just takes a lot of time, and, and, and I want the pictures to speak to each other, but there's a huge investment of time, and a lot of, as I said, a lot of false leads that I end up following. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Where do you come from? So my, uh, my family roots are Southern. In fact, my, uh, my mother's uh, grandparents were from rural Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee, and my father's family is from Northern Florida. But I, uh, they, they lived in the city. My dad worked in the city and then uh, eventually moved from, the, to Greenwich, from Greenwich Village to Old Greenwich, Connecticut. So I went from one Greenwich to the another Greenwich, <laughs> Greenwich Village to Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, at that time, it, you know, it was like a typical town. There, were, there was a factory and there were rich people and there were, most people were kind of in between. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, so I grew up there, spent a lot of time in the city, and, uh, and I've lived in Manhattan for the, or, or actually in New York for the past 40 years. Oh, so you didn't study uh, down in Tennessee. Was it, was it Michael Smith who ran the Eastern State yeah, program? Mike, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a really good photographer, but I think he had gone to Yale and, oh, then, he, and okay. then he ended up down there. He might have. I don't know if he was from there originally. Mm-hmm. I know he went to Yale. No, but after I graduated from college, I, I moved to New Orleans, and I've always had an interest in the South, and it's sort of like after 40 years, I eventually kind of made my return to that. Yeah. Did of. you study art in college? I studied, so I went to Princeton thinking I was going to study oh, architecture. The Emmett Gowan connection. Right. <laughs> I got to Princeton, and it was the heyday of postmodernism. And Michael Graves was a demigod at, at Princeton at the time. And I found most of the, what they were teaching was theoretical architecture, like paper architecture. In fact, the, one of the professors said, well, we don't teach you how to draw in this program. Uh, you know, the English department doesn't teach you how to type. And, and so they equated drawing with typing. I mean, wow. it was really weird. Yeah. And, and I was always interested in making things. I mean, in, in high school, I'd, I'd, I'd had a darkroom when I was like 12 and, 
and knew how to develop film and shot pictures. And was that through your your father, mother? Yeah, my went? father had was always interested in photography, so he bought a tiny little kind of enlarger and darkened ah. setup, and so my brother and I shared that. And so, yeah, I was developing black and white uh, roll film in in the kitchen sink when I was like <laughs> in seventh grade. Yeah, and then I painted in in high school a little bit. So anyway, I, I loved making things, and I loved, uh, I loved uh, visual narratives. I loved storytelling in a visual sense. And anyway, so I thought the architecture program was kind of, from my perspective, kind of bogus. I, I really wanted to be engaged. And so I was very fortunate my sophomore year to meet Emmett Gowan, who was just one of the most remarkable, inspiring teachers. And, and I learned a lot from him, not just about photography, but about you know what it is to be a to a person. I mean, I was a young a mm-hmm. young guy. I learned a lot of important life lessons from him. A real mentor. A real mentor in yeah. a, in in, in the deepest way possible. I mean, one of his lessons was that, you know, the way you put that piece of paper into the developer tray, and then the way you pick it up, and the way you let it drip off, and then the way you put it in the stop bath, and and your whole the whole um, he called it the quality of attention to the things that you're, the things you're treating, the, 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 you know, these objects, is the way you treat yourself. And so there was, there was a whole lesson in self-respect that was very important. Wow, that's, that's really something. It I mean, was really something. It's the whole something. act of it, the yeah, whole process. The whole, the whole, so like the way you treated that paper, the, the attention of, of care that you applied to your practice as a photographer directly ref- reflected the quality of attention that you had as a person. Yeah, I, I could see that philosophy spreading to the subject that you're photographing. Absolutely. The, and the, yeah, the whole yeah. act of making. Right. Yeah. So, so that, and so that was on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, Peter Bennell, who was the first, had the first endowed chair in the history of photography, was teaching the history of photography. And he had graduate students. And, and the library had this pretty much every photography book out there at that time. Huh whether it was 400 or 1,000. I mean, they were basically all there in the library. Wow. So I had the benefits of like an amazing apprenticeship combined with uh, studying the history of photography. So I had those two things. And then, uh, and then I applied, since I didn't really fit into any specific category in the university, I applied for what's called an independent uh, major. And um, I was fortunate to get that. So I ended up studying some philosophy, some literature, art history alongside my mm-hmm. photographic practice. So yeah. I had a nice, very well-rounded educational experience. I graduated with a degree, it says, you know, in photography. People were laughing at me like, oh, you went to Princeton, you studied photography. <laughs> nice. And, uh, you know, people were like, what is that about? Uh but it all worked out in the end. Right. But the thing was, after I was done, I graduated in 1979, I never wanted to go to any more school. I was like, this is it. I've had the best education possible, and now it's up to me. So I never considered going to graduate school or right. doing anything like that. Yeah. And then you were part of the, it was called the Collective Portrait of Emmett Cowan? I was. Yeah, that's quite a while ago. Yeah. Well, you know, he had so many. He was such an inspiring teacher. He had dozens and dozens of students that either became photographers or were critics or just art, hist- art historians, you know, photo historians. I mean, there were so many people that I met. I bet it's in, actually in the hundreds of people that he inspired, inspired sure. over the course of his career. He it's was like at Princeton fam- quite a while. He was. Yeah. He was there. Rosamund Solomon brought him 
1970. He was teaching at Bucks County, and I think he came to Princeton in 1972. Mm, wow. And he was there until 2010, roughly. So uh, just back up a little bit. Sure. What, what did your folks do for a living? So my father was a commercial architect, meaning that oh. he did design things like post offices and uh, warehouses for, you know, meat wholesalers. And uh, he worked for a big firm in New York. Uh, he also he'd also he, he had a degree in architecture and also in uh, engineering. So he he was more of a practical architect. He was someone who you know would make sure your roof didn't leak. But he wasn't <laughs> particularly like a kind of far out there imaginative. Yeah, you know, you know, wasn't that kind of architect. Right. But he was a solid, and he had a he had a little um, studio at home with a drafting table, and I used to you know hang out there and play with the balsa wood models and all the. <laughs> protractors and stencils and things like that and then my mother was a um editor of art books oh, so wow. she was she was mostly like a copy editor mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a kind of a chief editor let's say but she she worked on a lot of books particularly ones dealing with art history and so between the two and she also loved building as well so in fact on sundays after church we would often go visit a building like either one that my dad was had designed and was being built or some interesting house that they saw or, or something. So we spent a lot of times visiting architectural sites, construction sites when I was a kid. So I really grew up with a kind of sixth sense about buildings and about architecture and about how architectural space creates a kind of narrative. Wow. And I've been able to take that and then translate that into my photographic practice. Right, because they're... They're all related. I think photography and architecture are so are so wonderfully um, suited to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you know what, Yancey Richardson in the write up of your show said that you were investigating the inner empire. That's true. Well, that's yeah. but that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that metaphor in terms of yeah. the inner empire of a of a <laughs> of a structure. But I do think that that's true. I do think that especially people's um, like if you go into somebody's house. You go into their living room or their den or something. It's really a portrait of them. And so I really see interiors. I love shooting interiors because it is a kind of, uh, it's a revelation of someone's kind of inner world. Yeah. So I, I love that. But her, um, in that press release, she's really referring to the sequence of books on Detroit, Dirt Meridian, and now Blue Alabama as being a portrait of the interior of America. Mm-hmm. And kind of how we got to where we got in 2019. Right, right. I, you know, I, um, I, I spent years photographing the Morris Canal of New Jersey. It's one of the, you know, many canals that transported coal from Pennsylvania to New York. And what's what's become of the sites? And you know, in some places, um, it, uh, it's parks and beautiful jogging paths and things like that. And then in, in places where that are more economically depressed, it's. Uh, affordable housing and high school football fields and, and, right. and you know, right. whatever was left over, you know, could be used. And the thing that fascinates me about these, this kind of work is how something can be so valued for so long and then suddenly lose all of its value. And then, you know, it, the layers of it over time, how something new takes it over, then that loses its value. And it just it becomes this archaeological, you know, dig through American capitalism. It is, it is. And that relates back to this ruin porn article i think it was first published in guernica oh that was the first uh journal where i saw the term used 
it had been kind of kicking around before. I think some guy from Vice claims that he invented it. Mm-hmm. But I think it had been used actually after Katrina a little bit also. Um, but anyway, this idea that people were jetting in, that they had no empathy for the people who had lost their jobs, that the pictures didn't um, really get at the root causes of you know the failure of the capitalistic system and uh, a lot of things like that, uh, which... Um, you know, I have a lot to say about that. I don't know if you want to get into all that now, but I mean, there's... It's up to you. <laughs> well, How far you want to go? <laughs> you know, the first thing, was, you know, I felt, first of all, when it the whole thing came me. up, I yeah. felt kind of ambushed, but I was like, well, I hadn't, this was so far because I was so deeply engaged in my work and right. people in Detroit that I knew. And, and so this sort of kind of being swept along with like the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who had taken a picture of the Michigan Central Station. I'm like, well, this is not, this is not part of that. This, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, that was one thing. And then I thought some of it was incredibly superficial, like people saying, oh, well, you know, to be a photographer of this kind of nature, you have to have a degree in sociology and be a good writer. I'm like, no, I don't think so. That's not really... Those, what about you know, an empathetic I, human being? Yeah, what about right. an empathetic human being? Right. And and then, um, for instance, there was a there was an interesting article in The New Yorker at one point by George Packer talking about picturing the Great Recession. Like, how do we make pictures of the Great Recession? And about how, unlike in the 30s, we didn't have... Um, like the picture by Margaret Burke White of the people online with a huge billboard in front of it said, like, live the American way. And you have these people, you know, waiting for to get fed. Uh, you know, we don't have shots like that because everybody's staying home just watching TV. You know, uh, we don't have this kind of people in the streets, this kind of this kind of imagery. But he did say, well, you know, well, there's those pictures of Detroit with all these, you know, empty buildings. But, you know, what we really need are those pictures of the of the factory worker who's lost their job. And I completely disagreed with that guy. I mean, I know he got the Pulitzer Prize, but he was (laughs) so wrong about that because, in fact, what was new, what was the point of those empty pictures was the emptiness was the metaphor. These places were empty. The guy, the the factory worker who, who was sitting at home watching TV who'd lost his job, we'd seen those pictures before. We know what that looked like. What we hadn't seen was a factory like the Rouge, which had 100,000 people working at times on a daily basis, a completely devoid of people. We hadn't seen that. We hadn't seen empty streets, empty factories. And so for me, all these people missed the point that what was new, what was the, the story to tell at this moment, was the emptiness of the buildings, the factories, the town, the streets, the cities, the churches, the schools, right. the hospitals, all of that emptied out, gone. Uh, and and so I think they just were missing the point. So I think the whole ruined porn thing, on on so many levels, was incredibly superficial. And it, some of it was a kind of Detroit boosterism. People are like, "Don't show our dirty laundry." Some of it was these intellectuals who really don't understand what it is to be a photographer and to try to find new metaphors of their time to look at the history of today and try to make uh, a visual story of, of what's really right there. Of you know, learning by inquiry, right. looking at what's there, not prejudging or making some canned decision based on some older set of facts. Yeah, and, and it was written from a 
a much more journalist perspective. I guess you can tell. Like, I really, oh no, no, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in disagreement. Yeah. I, I think they they devalued the idea of the sort of the contemplative space, the contemplative space, the idea of of, of people absorbing something visually that that provokes thought, that provokes the you know. I think they were assuming people would see it and just go cool, <laughs> right? right? Right. Yeah, right. I think that's what. Right. It, where where they made the mistake? Well, you right? know, there. I mean, there there which can was, happen, but yeah, which can happen. And in fact, I think at one point, uh, if you search for ruins, there were more pictures of ruins than there were cats or right. something like that. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was, it, and it's still, and the, and there are. I I read a lot about this and thought a lot about this, and there is, there are deep psychological reasons why. People like ruins. There is oh, there yeah. is a love for ruins, and and you know whether it's that the architecture has been liberated and turned into kind of a sculptural space, whether it's a kind of memento mori reminding us of our human frailty and our, our isolation and our, our mortality, our loneliness, yeah. our mortality. Whether it's a kind of uh, there's a kind of thrill seeking adventure in the urban explorers and. And you know, so you can't go to the North Pole, but you can you can explore that huge steel making plant. And you know, uh, so I, I think it has so many uh, dimensions reflective of our time. I also think there's a, a particularly American experience in that our history is so young that those are our ruins, our ancient ruins. Absolutely uh, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. And in fact, some I have a picture of uh, like one of those uh, fuel tanks. And it says Fuel Oil Corp. And someone looked at that and said, yeah, that's our pyramids. <laughs> that's right. And I, and I agree with that. <laughs> yes, So that is, is our past. That is our history. Yeah. And, and because our landscape changes so uh, quickly, so radically, yeah. that, uh, you know, the next generation won't recognize oil tanks, you know, in, in 50 yeah. years. Right. right. Won't exist. Yeah. yeah. So it's very important to see what's before you and, to, and, to, and, and not to be... To be blocked by, um, or you know, too dependent on older models, right? Know, to see things freshly. Yeah. So, so early on, I would uh, earlier on, um, you had a bit of success with a, a documentary film. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that film really was, fascinating artist. Yes. Yes. So that film's called How to Draw a Bunny. Yes. <laughs> uh, I worked in that movie from 1996 through 2002 when it was finally. Um, Finished and came out at Sundance uh-huh. and actually won a special jury prize there. Um, Ralph Johnson. Ray Johnson. Ray Johnson. Sorry, Ray, Ray no, Johnson. No, 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 Ray Johnson. Ray Johnson, yes. So the, the, the origin of that project is that I had been making short experimental films, and this is in the early 90s. Then I got hired to do, I did a music video. I think I did a TV commercial. It was terrible. Like a bread, <laughs> it was like the world's worst bread commercial. What, what got you into then video and production? Uh, uh, yeah. uh, so, so we have to kind of work backwards. So yeah. in the mid 80s, I started making these montage pictures where I would take uh, my reject 8x10 negatives, both color and black and white, and sometimes even Xeroxes and hand paint, a lot of stuff. And I would sandwich them all together, corner to corner, put them in an 8x10 larger and print them. And, and I actually would contact print them. That's how I would first proof them. And they were like these wild scenes where I'd take uh, Florence, Italy, and combine it with New Orleans and just see what happened. It was, you know, and part of it was, at that point, I wasn't able to make 
enough successful sort of single images. You know, I felt like I, I, I wanted to do something. Plus, you know, I'd spent all this money buying 8x10 film. I'd have three negatives that were really pretty good, but I'd have 50 negatives that were sort of rejects. And I was like, I got to do something with this material. So anyway, I was making these montages and that's how I had my first show in New York. I had a couple of shows of that material. And then a collector came to me and said, oh, I see you're doing this multi-layering stuff. Well, we're doing that in video in real time. Why don't you come in uh, after midnight to my uh, post-production house, work with one of our hairy paint box artists, and, um, and make something? Hmm. So I... So I thought, that's great. So I, And I had shot some Super 8 footage, some video footage. I had some other things, some found footage. So I brought it in. We digitized it. And then I spent about six months uh, putting together this kind of short collage movie. And uh, it was called Nosferatu. It mm. had bits of that, you know, the old Carl Dreyer movie in it and some <laughs> other stuff. And uh, somehow I showed it to MTV. They liked it. And so they put it on their Artbreak series. Which wow. was super cool. Yeah. It was shown on um, a couple of PBS stations, WGBH. And then that kind of parlayed itself into some other gigs for VH1. And so, anyway, I've been making these short films, doing experimental films, doing short films. And I was uh, director of photography on some documentaries. And I met this guy named John Walter. And he got, uh, he made a, directed a film for the. I think it's called uh, American Masters or something like mm. that. It's a it's a PBS series, and he made an hour long film about Thomas Edison and the invention of the uh, light bulb. Hmm. So, which was shot in Detroit, in fact. After, and I was the director of photography on that documentary. And then he came to me and said, "I have an idea for a movie. I want to make a film about Ray Johnson." And now I had first read about Ray Johnson when his, his obituary came out oh. right after he died in the Times. And it was a mind, it was sort of a mind-blowing obituary. I, don't, <laughs> I can of, imagine, yeah. Uh, you know, this guy who had known everybody who was... Anyway, it was, it's, a, it's an extraordinary... It was an extraordinary moment. And I had remem- so I remembered the obituary and I said, okay, John, well, let me... That sounds interesting. Let me go to the library at the Museum of Modern Art and just sort of see what's what's available about this guy because I, I, I want to know more about him. So at that time, the, they had a card catalog, you know, with oh, physical yeah. cards, right? Right, right. So I go to the J's and there's like Philip Johnson and there's two whole of those wooden trays. And then there's Jasper Johns and he's got <laughs> three whole wooden trays of cards. And then I find Ray Johnson. And there's his name, and there's just two little cards, two wow. little entries. And they were both in storage in New Jersey. Oh. So I go back to, uh, to my friend John, and I say, great, let's make this movie, because nobody has this idea. This is going to, you know. So we, spent, uh, so we spent seven years investigating this guy's life, and we, and, and we just turned, we left no stone unturned, and... It was an intense experience uh, to go find his friends from the Black Mountain College days, childhood friends. He'd grown up in Detroit, in fact, had gone to Castec, which is so interesting because the old Castec High School where he went is one of the buildings in my Detroit book. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a weird parallel to be there when it was closed and just about to be demolished. 
and think that, you know, Ray Johnson in like 1945 had been walking the halls of that. Right. Of that but he was born in the 20s, right? He was born, I think, in 28. Or yeah, 27, 28, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he would have been like in like 43, would have been, uh, in 1943, would have right. been a high school student at Castec. And as far as people know, he committed suicide by swimming out in, in the middle of Right, like, so we call the Harbor. film a uh, right. uh, pop art collage mystery movie because it, in, it involves the origins of pop art. There's all kinds of, uh, the way John beautifully edited it, it's got all these raised collages but it's also collage with uh visually and with the uh, soundtrack by max roach and then there's the whole narrative itself right which is which the film has a sort of structure of uh citizen kane and that you start with a death yes then you wind (laughs) through and you see the life and then you at the end of the movie you come back to the death and but in this in and then you you have a little bit more context then for that event. Did the name How to Draw a Bunny come from his bunny kind of logo that he put in the when he was doing the mail art? Where he's mailing Correct. art. Correct. So to he people? did. Yeah. He had these. Uh, they were called rabbits. Part of his whole style or the language of his artwork was a nod to the uh, art schools that you would find on a matchbook cover. Let's yes. Say, Do you want to, can, can you draw this duck? I remember two, them from the back of comic books. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that idea, right? So that was <laughs> one of Ray's early inspirations in a sense. So he right. loved playing. It was very, everything was deadpan. Everything was a kind of surrealist joke, you know, or Dada's mm-hmm. joke. So it was a, one play within another play within another play. Did you speak to a family or... We did. We spoke yeah. to, he had no children, but we mm-hmm. did speak to his first cousin. Okay. And then was, was that, there's a site now dedicated to Yeah, he had a lot of... Did incre- that come from the making of the movie or was... He, or he, he always had these kind of weird fan clubs of people who were just absolutely devoted to him. And I think, especially after the movie and then with the rise of the internet, the, these things have really sprung up all yeah. over the place. But, yeah, you can uh, see a lot of the work there. Yeah, yeah, you, can. yeah. you can. A friend of mine is actually writing a book about Ray and uh, Marianne Moore and Joseph Cornell. And, uh, and, and so what's gratifying is that when we started, nobody knew who Ray Johnson was. Yeah. And now he's become kind of a... Right, a real, a real figure in the Dadaist pop art, uh, the the whole the mail art of people drawing art on envelopes, and they were sending back and forth. It Correct, was really interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. But it was a challenge. It was a challenging project. I mean, I loved all the research. I loved calling people mm-hmm. and spending hours on the phone and persuading them that, you know, we were decent guys and they'd <laughs> let us come out and and look through contact sheets that they hadn't looked at in 40 years. I mean, I, I, I love real investigation. Yeah, yeah. The, um, is that available, the film? So that film, that's interesting. So It's uh, an art house film, right, it's I think? A, the DVD was distributed for 10 years by, I can't remember, Palm Pictures. Oh, okay. I think it's out of print now. It's very hard to find the DVD. I think I found a bootleg on Vimeo. Yeah, there's some bootlegs. Um, we've been talking for years about re-releasing the film, and I'm hoping that we'll get to that. Oh, I'd love to. I, I run a gallery in Trenton. I'd love to screen it. If oh, really? It yeah, it's funny. Out. John Walter lived in Trenton. Oh, wow. When we were making the movie. In fact. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Is. Oh, maybe. That, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe we could do that. I would love, to, I would love that. Eventually, we, we need to uh, reformat the film for digital projection yes. and, uh, and then re-release it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you a, a funny question. Um, you did aerial photography when you were doing... Um, Dirt Meridian. Dirt Meridian. Correct. Which is about the 100th... Uh, what, oh, boy, I'm Longitude. sorry. Longitude line, right? Right. right. Uh, the dividing what, line, yes. What's yeah. commonly known as flyover country, right? Correct. Uh, would you then now consider using drone photography? I actually am using drones ah, these days. That's what I was wondering. The reason why we used a plane out west is because the distances were so vast. So sometimes we'd have to fly 500 miles in a day mm. to get from one place to the next. There was also extreme weather. And, and, and we worked out this special rig. So even in the midst of winter, we could fly and shoot and things like that. And there were open space, so you could just you could just fly anywhere. Nobody was going to call in the FAA. You could do crop duster height and everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but I'm using drone photography now because in cities, in more populated areas, you can't use a low flying plane. It's too noisy, too dangerous, and but uh, so so I've been actually the past year, in fact, using drones quite often, and and I really love it. Uh, the only problem is that people are so freaked out about their yeah. Their presence, they think. So. Yes. But in fact, oftentimes <laughs> when the drone is up in the air, nobody even knows it's there. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so you just have to get it in the air and nobody knows <laughs> right. it's there. But what I love is low-flying drones. I like to fly them not high, but I like to fly well, them very that's low. That's funny you say that. I, I often find a lot of aerial photography looks the same because it is the sky-high view. Correct. What distinguishes yours is that low flying idea, is that sense of the more personal space or that home or that detail that you get uh, from the work you were doing. Correct. And that was that was very intentional. You know, there's you know, there, I mean, I not to diss aerial photographers, oh, but yeah. a lot of times what they do is they're shooting out the window of a plane. Hmm. The pilot will pitch the plane over. And so they're kind of shooting straight down, maybe from 800 feet. And and it's a very abstract process. And I knew that I really wanted to do something. I wanted you to place you in the picture. So I worked with some camera specialists and some airplane specialists, and we we we, we made this custom rig. Basically, oh, I saw some video of it to yeah. hang the pl- to hang the camera right off the strut of the airplane, uh, which accomplished a couple of things. First of all, you're looking straight ahead, right? Second of all, it allows you to be in the cockpit. Uh, with pan and tilt on the on the robotic uh, head, let's say, of the camera, and uh, shooting to a laptop, and then if, then you could shoot in wintertime. I mean, you're not you're not oh, you don't have to yes. stick your head out a window. <laughs> you don't have to be tethered uh, to the plane. But the main and, thing right. was that you could you know again with a very good pilot like uh, Doug uh, who uh, Doug Johnson who I flew with out in Nebraska, you know who flies ten feet off the ground all day long all summer long as a oh, crop wow. duster. You know the idea. You're 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 down low. You're looking straight, and so you you have the foreground. So you have this great narrative detail. You're low enough to see the detail, and yet at the top of the frame, you all often have the horizon. So you have the deep space, and you, and you're really in the picture, and you're not you're not abstracted. And so I so I intentionally did that, and yeah. I, and I, to to place you inside the photograph. Right. And then drone photography can kind of do the same thing, but you you can be in a more crowded urban environment. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember for a while they they put a um, a permit restriction on drone drone photography. It was an FAA restriction, but then right. they removed it. They repealed it, I think. They did, but now I think you still need to have some kind of. There's a I can't remember that. There's a special license you need oh, from okay. the FAA. Right. And in some cases they want you to be a pilot. In some cases you need you know there's certain qualifications for that. 
Some countries are very, like in Singapore, you could just fly a drone in the middle of the city. It's fine. Other places, they'll take your drone. Like uh, when we were in Azerbaijan shooting for uh, National Geographic, and they and at the airport, they just took the drone away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so it depends. It <laughs> we, yeah, we got it back when we left the country. Oh, okay. But uh, for the, the Blue Alabama book, the last layer of pictures I made was with a drone. Oh, okay. And uh, I hired somebody who was a very experienced pilot because it's a two-person thing generally. One person flies, one person shoots. It was great. It was that great to makes add a lot that. of sense. You still need a pilot. You still yeah. need a pilot yeah. because one, you know, because the flying itself is somewhat stressful. So if that person just photographs, I mean, just focuses on the flying, and then the the picture taker can say, "Oh, go a little bit right, go a little bit left," and they're just yeah. focused on that on that on the flying process. Yeah. Do you still do editorial work then? I do. I do some editorial work. I have. I've done a lot over the years. I just did a big project for National Geographic, which was interesting uh, because they're the only magazine I've ever worked for where the pictures come first. Mm. Basically, there's a concept. Oh. The photographer goes out, shoots a lot of pictures, and then and then basically the writer kind of hooks up his story later to the pictures. Very interesting process. Very, a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was interesting. Um, yes, I still do. I, I, I like it. I don't know what's kind of in the future for me in terms of, you know, once I finish this this uh, Alabama book, uh, I'd like to I'd like to do one more project in the states. I'll probably keep doing some editorial work. Just don't really know what's ahead. Oh, uh, a little mixture. Are you of thinking things. about leaving the U.S. or no, 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 oh, I don't, oh, okay. no, 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 no. I I, I think <laughs> I'm going to continue shooting in the U.S. Oh, sure. okay. But there are right. some places I've seen recently that that intrigue me and i and mm-hmm. um i may do i may go back and do some foreign travel as well mm, yeah so you know this this episode came about because i was talking to uh yoav friedlander right. mm-hmm. and uh he was uh, talking about the rust belt biennial right uh, he and uh, nico j kalyanotis asked if the uh, award winner could be a guest on the show and if maybe i wanted to do a show at the gallery and all and so so we're doing that but um uh how did you get involved that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, Nico was a student of mine. So was Yo. They were both students of mine. Yeah. I, I think they're both really wonderful photographers. Absolutely. Uh, Yoav assisted me uh, quite a bit in Alabama. And uh, I helped Nico a little bit get his book published. I mean, I introduced mm-hmm. him to Damiani, so for better or worse. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I really like them, and I know they've been uh, exploring Pennsylvania quite a bit. I mean, obviously, Nico lives there, so, so right. and shooting 8x10 and a lot of other things. You know, after I, after I did my Detroit book, I, I didn't really want to shoot in the Rust Belt. I didn't want to go to Toledo or Cleveland. I mean, I've really kind of done it, and it was time to move on. But I, but I, I appreciate what they're doing. I know there's a lot of interesting pictures to be made. And I'm just really excited to kind of help them out. So yeah, well, I, I think you know you you have uh, mentioned he couldn't think of a more appropriate person to right. uh, to to curate and jury and everything else. Right. Yeah. Right. I just don't know what I'm in for yet. But yeah. I'll, I'll see. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they do either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great you're going to do that for them, Michael. Oh yeah. Thanks. No, yeah. no. I'm yeah. very excited to be a part yeah. of it. Um, I showed. Nico's work, America in a Trance, at the gallery in Trenton. He did. And went, yeah, that was actually the debut of his book as well. Nice. 
Nice. Yeah, it was a really nice show and all. And uh, the book came out great, by the way. It's oh, the really... book is gorgeous. Yeah, the cook- yeah. book is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The printing, everything. The mm-hmm. I mean, the color. And and Nico's an amazing printer himself. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Really, especially coming from a, another color photographer, I was so in awe of his prints. Right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> That's great. So did did I miss anything? What uh, anything you're working on now? Just trying to finish this book. You know, just yeah. trying to finish the writing. Thinking about how to incorporate. I mean, one of the things I've learned from, I think I'm on my eighth book now, Yeah, is how important writing is to photography. You know, as much as I love architecture and photography, I also see now, especially in terms of a book, that people love to have different access points to photographs. They'll look at a picture, then they'll look at the caption or the title, then they might read a thumbnail note about it, And then there's maybe an essay or several different essays about it or the photographer's story. And then later on, someone will add something else to it. So, I mean, I think that photographs can bear different points of view, different points of reference, like different access points into them. And so um, I'm thinking a lot about that and thinking about how to expand the notion of, of writing and photography together but not in some pedantic way, not, not telling people what they should feel, but in terms of providing different kinds of narrative threads into the pictures. Mm. So that is my, yeah. the next thing I really want to think about and try and experiment with. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I know you probably haven't had time to eat yet. I think you came straight from class. To, I did, to yeah. I did, I did. Well, thank you, Michael. It's really a pleasure. Oh, yeah, this has been great. Okay. All right. All right, bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.